It's time, once again, for Deep Thoughts. Hey, I want to talk with you about studying the Bible. I'm a little bit reluctant to because you could take entire courses on reading and interpreting scripture. And so this is going to be embarrassingly brief. But on the other hand, a few clarifying comments can be really helpful. And most Christians throughout the world lack the ability to take courses on studying the Bible and yet can grow in faith so much through a commitment to studying scripture. So I hope you'll find this helpful. I'll start by telling you some stories I read in a book called Asking the Right Questions. And I wonder if you can relate to any of them. Her excitement was contagious. Malika had been a Christian for only a few months, but already her life was beginning to change. She had a newfound joy and peace that transcended her circumstances. If the doors of her local church were open, she was likely there. She loved to sing the the hymns and worship songs she was learning. Throughout the day, she found herself spontaneously praying about situations and people. She was even beginning to talk to her co-workers and neighbors about Jesus. Since she had grown up in a non-Christian home, everything about her relationship with Jesus was new. There was just one problem. She had no idea how to understand the Bible and apply it to her life. The woman who led her to Christ emphasized the importance of being in the Word on a regular basis, but had not given Malika any help or training in how to do this. Every Sunday, her pastor faithfully preached the Bible and encouraged the congregation to study scripture on their own, but just the thought of it completely overwhelmed Malika. Every time she tried to read her Bible, she just became more discouraged. Laura has been a believer since she was eight years old. Her parents regularly read the Bible with her and encouraged her involvement in the church's youth ministry. When it came time to choose a college, Laura opted for a small Christian liberal arts college where she knew she would have lots of opportunities to grow in her faith. From her first day on campus, Laura was involved in several different ministries at school and her local church. Despite her constant involvement in ministry, however, Laura struggled to maintain consistent time in God's Word on her own. She enjoyed hearing the messages in chapel and sermons from the pastor at her church, At times, she even attended a Sunday school class. But when she sat down to read and apply the Bible herself, she regularly walked away frustrated. Laura even took an elective class on how to study the Bible, but the method her professor taught was so complicated that she never had the time for it. After several years of being a member at his church, Toby was asked to lead a small group. He had come to faith in Christ in his early 30s and has been involved in the church for the past 15 years. While he is no Bible scholar, Toby spends time reading the Bible nearly every day. On occasion, he even reads the Christian books that deepen his understanding of the Bible and how to live the Christian life. And each week when his small group meets to talk about that week's sermon and the passages on which it is based, however, Toby often walks away disappointed or even frustrated. Too often their discussions wander down rabbit trails that have little or nothing to do with what the passage says, where the conversation stays on the surface level and never gets around to how the truths of that passage should change our lives. If you've ever been a part of a Bible study, you could probably relate to that at times. So, At the risk of saying far too little, here are two clarifiers and one framework to keep in mind in your Bible reading. Here's the first clarifier. Understand that the Bible is not written to us, 
but is written for us. So what this requires carefully distinguishing between what the Bible says to all people in all times and what it says to a certain people at a certain time. So in Romans 15 verse 4, it says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, now these things happen to them as an example. Who are them? Well, it's those that Paul was writing about at the time. He goes on to say, but they were written down for our instruction. Now these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction. These verses remind us that the Bible was written for us. It was written for our instruction, but it was not written directly to us in the sense that, well, the book of First Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth, yet it was written for us as well. And so without this distinction, we're likely to make mistakes when we read and apply the Bible. Let me give you an obvious example. In Genesis chapter 22, God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, God is not writing that to us. I'm not to take my only son. I don't, actually, I have two. And he's not named Isaac. And I'm not supposed to go sacrifice him. Why? Well, because God was saying that to Abraham. We know we shouldn't offer one of our kids as a sacrifice. We're not Abraham. God did not say this to us, but he did say it for us. It's to show us that we are to put our faith in God. We are to trust him and we are to love him above all things. In that regard, it was written for us. And yet that exchange was to Abraham. Same thing goes in Matthew 19, where a rich man comes to Jesus and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. After the rich man claims he's kept all the commandments, Jesus tells him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, if we think these words are written to us, then all believers, all believers must sell everything to follow Jesus. But if we recognize these words were said to the rich young ruler and written down for us, we can understand and apply them accordingly. Essentially, money was an idol to the rich young ruler. He loved it more than he loved God. And so Jesus said, sell your stuff and follow me. Loosen your grip on the thing you love most and tighten your grip to me because you'll have life. Now, some of us do need to heed those words and maybe apply them in the way that Jesus was inviting the rich young ruler to. But it's not written to us like it is to the rich young ruler. It's written for us. So that's the first clarifier. Understand that the Bible's written for us, not to us. Second clarifier. Understand the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. couple big words, but here's what they mean. Exegesis is getting the message out of a text. Eisegesis is getting the text to say what you want it to say. Exegesis is reading the text in context. Eisegesis is reading into the text. 
and then taking it out of context. Exegesis is legitimate interpretation we should do, which reads out of the text what the original author meant to convey. Eisegesis, on the other hand, reads into the text what the interpreter either wishes to find or thinks he finds there, and it expresses the reader's own subjective ideas, not the meaning which is in the text. We need to understand there was an original intent of the author inspired by the Holy Spirit writing down God's word, and it had a particular meaning in its context. And only when we discover what that is, can we apply faithfully. But if we misinterpret, well, we'll also misapply. Eisegesis is similar to proof texting. Proof texting is trying to prove a theological point by pulling a verse out of context to do so. I'll give you a really kind of obvious cheeky example, right? Of course, a Christian's life will always go smoothly. It says in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, now just looking at the broader context, you'll see that Jeremiah is saying, he's saying that to people who were literally in exile at the time. And so to apply it in a way that says everything will always go well in your life if you follow God is a severe case of eisegesis and proof texting. Let me illustrate it again this way. Let's say you read the following sentence. Running is good, he thought to himself. Running is good. Now, just reading those words, the statement seems so obvious. Man, running is really healthy. But what if the paragraph before that sentence was this? Dave never owned up to his failures. When relationships got difficult, rather than face them, apologize, and make things right, he'd bail. As his wife tried to address the way he'd hurt her, he stormed out the door. Running is good, he thought to himself. Running is good. Well, that actually sounds really unhealthy. Right? Without understanding the words of Scripture in their context, we don't get a full picture of what's really going on. And people do this with their Bibles all the time. Here's another, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Oh, we can win the game because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Oh man, I know I'm going to close this business deal because I can do all things through Christ. Now, that's reading into a text, not reading the words of the text in their context. And then that's misinterpretation. In the original context of Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul was on house arrest, waiting to go to a trial that might end his life. And yet in the midst of difficult times, Paul was able to thrive as he discovered that no matter what was going on, he had all he could ever need in Jesus. And he could have joy because Christ was strengthening him. So that's the second clarifier. Understand the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. I encourage you impress some people at the dinner table uh, next time with those words. Now, finally, if our goal is to understand and apply the Bible, we need to make sure we're asking the right questions. I want to help you ask the right questions as you read the Bible. So here's a basic framework for you to keep in mind while reading and interpreting the Bible. And really, it's four basic questions to ask. The first question we must ask of every biblical text is simply this. 
what does it tell us about God? What does it say about who he is and what he does? What is it saying about his character and his attributes? Now, we have our own preconceived notions of what God is like, but we always, first and foremost, need to come to the Bible with the question, what does it tell us about God? And as it describes who God is and what God is like, we need to believe that. We need to let that be uh, the guide by which we understand God. So that's the first and primary question we should ask. What does it tell us about God? The second question is, what does this text say about us human beings? Right? We're meant to, uh, what does it say about what we are meant to be and, and, and what has gone wrong? Brian Chappell refers to this as the fallen human condition focus. It, it's identifying in a text what's broken. Where is there sin? What, what's the human part in this passage of scripture? It also helps us interpret difficult passages in the Bible. And, and really, the most difficult passages in the Bible typically show us how bad things get apart from God. Oftentimes, the most troubling passages of Scripture are merely descriptive of where sin leads humanity, not prescriptive of how we ought to live. So the second question we should ask is, what does this text say about us human beings? The third question is, what has God done about this. Really, this is the gospel solution. It doesn't matter where in the Bible you're reading. Jesus told his disciples that the Old Testament is ultimately about him. Sure, in the Old Testament, Jesus is more concealed and in the New Testament, fully revealed. But no matter what part of the Bible you're reading, you can always ask the question, how does the text I'm reading contribute to God's saving message in Christ? So, so far, we're talking about God is holy Our sin has separated us from a holy God, but Jesus came, right? God himself brought the solution to our greatest problems. And we should be looking, and the third question we should be asking is, what has God done about the problem of sin, the brokenness in humanity? And the fourth and final question is, how are we called to live in response? Now, this is the fourth and final question we should ask, and it's about applying, applying the Bible to our lives. How now shall we live? And there are some questions within that question. How are we called to live in response that we could ask? Is there an example for me to follow in this text? Or a command for me to obey? A truth about God for me to know? Any sin for me to forsake? Or any promise for me to claim? This framework for Bible reading has four basic components. God, humanity, gospel, and response. You want to hear from God? You wonder what God thinks or what God is like? He wrote it down in a book. What an amazing reality. I hope you'll pick up the Bible and read and find these clarifiers and framework helpful. Thanks for joining me for A Deep Thought on Studying the Bible.